The Football Show on Off The Ball. With Sky. Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, EFL, Scottish Premiership and much more. Live on Sky Sports. I'm prepared to do anything I can well, to do play it then. country again. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should there be an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Yeah, great to have you with us for the football show. Now, I must say, as we were enjoying Nathan Twinkletoes Collins do his thing in Poland, it was a crisis-prompting 4-0 defeat for England at home to Hungary. If not crisis-prompting, certainly not ideal to have Molyneux Stadium chanting sacked in the morning and you don't know what you're doing to their beloved Gareth Southgate, which is what happened. And English media today awash with should Gareth lead us to Qatar. So uh, two games out from World Cup. It's a fairly extraordinary turnaround, all on a Nations League week. I mean, Martin O'Neill, he could have told you, Gareth, these things are important. Jonathan Wilson is going to join us later on this hour. But first, to the twinkle-toed Collins, Dan McDonald of the Irish Independent is home from Poland. Dan, hello. Hi, Joe. How are things? Very well. Can't help but notice, Dan, Ireland's scoring a lot of good goals lately. Yeah, I, I was thinking a couple of years back... Um, was it the year where Shane Duffy scored where they just had to change the rules of the goal of the year competition because they couldn't get uh, they couldn't get three goals because Ireland only scored one in the year. I think it was his header against Bulgaria 2020. So they had to broaden it out to any goals scored by an Irish international, international team. Sort of reminds me of that year, seven or eight years ago, where uh, the Young Player of the Year award, uh, the Young Senior International Player of the Year award was complicated by the fact I'm not sure they had enough eligible players who actually, under the age of whatever it was, uh, played. So they had to put the age limit up. And even then, you were looking at someone being nominated for playing 10 minutes off the bench in one game. So uh, under a lot of headings, uh, it's different now. Where actually the goal of the season or the goal of the year thing actually might hmm. might have to be uh, sort of returned back to which is its initial state. You know, you have to have just the men's one. You have the women's one. You don't have to include like underage games or whatever just to, to fill out the fact that Ireland haven't scored. But um, yeah, to be in the stadium for Collins, I have to say, was um, a sort of a giddy moment. But I don't really get, um, I'm very much like don't react in the press box. That would be my mindset. And yet, sort of three times in the last week, I've sort of had to give that sort of shocked reaction of did that just happen? And uh, more so laughing. And last night was one of those ones that I just found myself laughing at the sheer sort of... Uh, I don't know, the impotence of it all even, just the fact that he, he, the outside of the foot finish was just the, the cherry on top to what was already a stunning performance from him and it was just surreal that this was the next step up. Um, and tell me this, Dan, what is the uh, Irish goal of the season then? Oh, I still, I do you know what, like, uh, uh, I love the, the parrot the parrot header and I love the fact that Obafemi built it up but I'm trying to think which one did I did I take the most enjoyment of when it happened, and I'm sort of leaning towards the Collins one. I have to say, because um, just you know he he steps in to intercept the ball, and he just you know at that game he at that point of the game he he was already so commanding and dominant, and it's like it was almost like watching. Um, you know, do you ever see sometimes you might see schoolboy football and there'll be clearly one better, bigger player who's just dominant over everyone else and they can like charge through. And yet you're watching him do this, conscious of the fact that he's 21 and he's doing it against 
you know, a, a pretty decent international team, if you know what I mean. Um, and I think it's one of those where maybe putting that context on it is probably what makes Collins for me. Maybe if you showed it to three people in America or something who didn't know anything about the players and the stories and, and behind it, I don't know. They'd probably vote for the Open Femi goal, wouldn't they? The, the sort of the the, the Thunderbolt. Mm. Um, but I think for me, just knowing uh, the, the whole story behind that, I thought Collins. But I don't know. What's your take? Where, where are you? Where's your vote going on this? In this fictional, in this fictional competition thus far. Uh, well, I certainly have Obafemi third, even though it was maybe the most thrilling and whoa kind of a yeah. moment for obvious reasons. I. I, I, I I'd potentially lean still towards Parado Bafemi. I thought that mm-hmm. was the most high-quality, um, all-round crafted goal. I mean, look, what Collins did was glorious and, and so exciting in its own way. And already it's a trademark of his that he likes to step in ahead of his man. He's been doing that across the week and doing it brilliantly. And so he's, you know, watching it again, even just in advance of chatting to you, he really does step in from a long way out on this occasion because he, he reads the fact that the Ukrainian player is not tuned into the past that's coming, so he can really gamble. And that's, you know, all, all the hallmarks of, in, of his intelligence there are on show. And so he, he gambles at pace, makes, I'd say, 15-yard burst to intercept that ball. And then he just sort of says, well, I'm moving at pace, I'm going to keep going at pace, and it opens out for him. And the chop with his right foot onto his left knee, I've seen some people say that that was deliberate. I, I don't think that's quite deliberate, to be honest. But I'm with you on the finish. Like Kenny Cunningham in commentary said that there was a certain arrogance to the finish. And I, yeah. I, you know, and, and that was what was so lovely about it. He was in, he was in total control of his faculties because it's so, can you imagine being that age, international football, finding yourself with the ball at your feet in the penalty area for potentially the first time in your life and you're calm enough to just manipulate your body, take in the situation and, and, and get into to such a, a shape that the outside of the foot finish is beautiful and is the cherry on top. But at the same time, we can go overboard. It's not Luka Modric's outside of the pass kind of right boot. I mean, it was for a level of, for a player of Cons's level, the execution of that's routine. But what is exceptional is the composure to get himself in, in the right position to just finish with such a plum and, and, and to get himself in a, in a shape where that finish for him, for him, as I catching it was, wasn't actually that difficult. And and I loved as well the shot from behind the goal. I'm sure you've seen it on TV of like Malumbi certainly and one or two others like hunched down watching from behind and the moment where he does finish with all the aplomb that you would want. It's just a beautiful thing and the excitement of this young team who are doing it on a on a pretty cool stage. I mean, it was it was a really magical Irish footballing moment. I'm almost talking myself into the Collins yeah. goal now, but <laughs> oh, no, no, <laughs> good, no, good no. chat to have. <laughs> You've described, like, I haven't seen that behind the goal, but I think oh, that, so I've good. never come around to thinking why I think it's the best because, and, and the Paris Obafemi link up was magnificent, right? And I know also it wasn't just like two elements because Paris obviously got up off the ground and had to embark on the run that anticipated it. But I know you know, from the Scottish point of view, they'd say, well, the defenders were sort of very slack and sort of ball watching. But like, so Obafemi executed a brilliant pass and had vision and Parrot, great run and header. But Parrot, I said, Collins had to step in, make the burst, keep his component. Like, there's so many more elements to what he had to execute. And I know you're saying about Luka Modric, but it's not Luka Modric. It's the centre half has never scored for his country before, you know? So... Maybe when I think of all the things he had to do, and also wasn't a great surface as well, which is another thing I would say. 
um, pitch wasn't wasn't terrific. So um, you know, just like the, there was there was sort of uh, some very good Ukrainian players on the pitch who weren't necessarily slaloming through people. They overran it a couple of times in the second half, and they actually struggled at times with it. So. Um, no, I've decided to go all in on Team Collins here now. I think that is that that is the one for me because you know Ukraine could have defended it better, but in some ways it was like this is a an unstoppable force coming past you here, and and he 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 did it. Whereas in some ways the Obafemi Parrot one was you know a product of some sort of lethargic Scottish display. But you know this is like one of these goal of the season competitions. You end up doing down great goals to have at least at least we're not disputing. Which header from a corner from six yards was a uh, more you know was better you know like which comical ricochet off a Serbian defender uh, own goal like, you know which had the you know which was which was which did Ireland do more to create you know which error from an opponent did Ireland do more to force I mean if this is the standard going forward for for these goal of the season goal of the year competitions we'll, we'll take it I'm happy to have these debates what about the general performance then what would you say. Yeah, I thought it was really good. I did. Yeah, I mean, just just from being there, like just, there was no doubt in the first half. I felt um, like Ukraine started almost with a small bit of a swagger to the point of they're actually we were a bit loose, a bit lax in some ways. You know, there was a few little showboaty touches, and you're thinking, just, I think they really think this is going to be a this is going to be routine enough in some ways because I mean their second string had beaten Ireland without sort of withstanding too many punches. Um, but it was just one of those games as it went on, you were thinking, no, Ireland are able to match them here in, in a lot of departments. Um, and I know the point will be made, and it's a valid one, that for Ukraine, it's the end of a, a long and very draining and emotional window over so many headings. But I think it's also disingenuous to make that point without reflecting on how many players Ireland were actually missing as well. Um, you know, frontline players, and I know um, that the, the so I mean, the emergence of Collins, say, you know, um, the depth of you know how good Darrow Shea was, uh, Darrow Lenehan. But I mean, Lenehan hadn't hadn't played competitively for Ireland before. You know, O'Shea had a long injury setback. I mean, that back three had never played together before. Maybe at most, you know, one or two training sessions working towards this. Um, and to be able to produce a pretty coherent display, starting from there and then sort of carried forward into other positions, um, I think that was really good. I mean, I, I, I definitely think, you know, um, like, and it felt like more of a proper away game, a bit of an atmosphere, albeit in a neutral territory. But these are the type of challenges that this team is going to have to negotiate if they're going to qualify for a tournament. And they they did a pretty decent job, and and I I find it very hard to pick fault with last night. Um, mm. I I think in some ways like it was as rounded a performance as as Scotland. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And what I liked as well is that there was a certain pragmatism at times on the ball. They weren't afraid to, and I'm I'm not, you know I make a point, and I said it to Vinnie Perth last night. There were no hacks of the ball away. There were cultivated passes and clips up the line and into space and, and quite often they resulted in Ireland retaining possession but it, it, we weren't stuck over playing in our own 18-yard box which can sometimes happen with this team so they made it very, very difficult for Ukraine at times which was good and I thought it was striking as well, Dan and you were in the stadium so you may have a better sense of this but it seemed like at full time 
quite a few of the Irish players had hands on heads or hands on knees as if to say we're a bit disappointed with that. And it was the fans in the stadium who, it must be said, fans in the stadium are always the most supportive of the general populace. I mean, Old Trafford still supports Manchester United, whereas it feels like the whole place is on fire mm. online. But the fans in the stadium were almost more upbeat than the players and almost lifted them a touch as if to say... We totally get where you as are, are as a group, but we love what you're doing, and should, you should actually be happy with this. Was the message I thought communicated from the stands? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think there's something that, like, in some ways, how Ireland approached it. I mean, the last twenty minutes, fifteen, twenty minutes, like I think there was a feeling that it was there for them, and I suppose it's the one little cautionary note. Like, and I think I've heard this discussed in the last couple of days. I think it might have been yourself that. Like sometimes, you know, the the Irish teams, when everything is on the line, like they perform, they have this short-term target. And I think in some ways, like getting six points from these two games was the way to atone for the disaster of, of taking nothing from the first two. So in some ways, elements of last night, like the second leg of a playoff or something where you're chasing it and, and it produces that level. And I suppose they had that in Slovakia. They... they in the Euros playoff, albeit a lot of different players, you know, even in Portugal last September, when they were still in the World Cup campaign going into it, and then they did produce this performance and then get done by the Ronaldo headers, but it was a very live target. And even just chatting to players after, I think I think this is just how they're wired. Like they're not sort of thinking about sort of well the broader evolution of this team as much as it's there. It's very much okay, what do we need to do to win? To, to get back into this group and to top this group. That was very much the discussion. I even try to speak to people after, well, you know, are these performances about how you, you know, this is how you get to Germany in 2024? And they're very much, well, looking at the chance to finish in top in this group now, you know? So I think that's where that came from at the end. Yeah, okay. They got it into their head. This was must win. And that's where the, they're not looking at some big, broader debate. It's very much, this was a game we have to win. And, and now, I mean, to be honest, Ireland's chances of winning the group are pretty remote. Um, whereas winning that game last night would have put Ireland surreal. It would have been Ireland. Would, I think would have been top on the head to the head. So yeah, uh, that's the margins. You yeah. mentioned the back three, for instance, having never played together, and Alan Brown is now our uh, quasi right wing back whenever needed. What jumps out this campaign in particular, man? There are a lot of players available to Stephen Kenny, and he's blooded a lot of players. And that's a great thing to have depth. Of course it is, because we see how frequently injuries arise. But there is actually, given how few games management have going forward before things get very, very serious again, it is actually a bit of a job to establish with a fair degree of certainty what Ireland's best team is and what the best system is. Uh, and, and I think you look at any really good team, consistency of selection and knowing your best team is important. You look at any Premier League team which is struggling, like Spurs and Manchester United this year, you never know what the team is going to be. And as Conte arrives, you start being able to predict a team because it's going well. And that's where Kenny and Ireland would like to get because we did see a seismic enough shift. Well, seismic's too big a word, but I did say seismic enough. You'll take the point anyway, the way it's intended, yeah. in the change of shape. And we saw like the, the determination even last night to preserve the Malumbi Cullen, uh, Jason Knight midfield, for instance, a sense that, well, at least we, maybe we can box that off. But there are quite a few things to box off and uh, quite a few partnerships right across the field here for Stephen Kenny and Keith Andrews and company to try and nail down into something that we can all say, yeah, that's the best team. Yeah, but isn't it, I'm sure if we spoke two weeks ago, I, mean, I think after the last window, um, 
we, we possibly thought that Ireland were somewhat on the way to doing that with Robinson and Ogbené and, 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 and Cullen and Hendrick. And, and maybe what it shows is that in international football, you can you can have these discussions and aspire to it, but actually you probably do need that depth of player pool to to withstand it, you know? And, and, and that's the thing, like, um, particularly this international year where there's just basically three main windows, only two competitive ones um, from Ireland's perspective. And then, you know, like a gap to November, whereas normally there'll be five gatherings a year. It's, it's, it's a weird one. So it's very much like, you know, past the parcel when the music stops and like who's in a good place at this stage in their life. Like Robinson looked like the answer to me in this window. He looked like someone who was badly out of form and unfit mm. or certainly not, not sharp. Um, does that mean in September if he comes back and he's suddenly back playing again, does he get back to maybe levels of last year? So maybe, you know, for me, probably Kenny's big mistake in this window, in my opinion, is not necessarily Yerevan, although that was obviously very disappointing. But I do think it's one of those games that sometimes happens if you're, you know, cup shocks happen, you know. You know, lesser teams, surprise teams where they absorb pressure and, and hit them. And Ireland were a bit predictable and laboured and, and yeah. got got what they deserved maybe. It was that he didn't freshen the team enough for the second game and probably stayed a little bit too loyal to players who he probably thought coming into this window were his first choice players that you always put on the team sheet. Robinson, Hendrick, you know, a, a few of those that these have done well for me. I want this consistency because Stephen Kenny has always wanted a settled team. He's always worked better with it. But it, it just so happened that the better options in this window were other ones. So now we can come away from it thinking, well, yes, it now has to be player X and player Y. And of course, that's true in the case of Nathan Collins. Yeah. Um, but in others, it's 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 it, 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 the variables may change depending on, on where they're at. But it does show, yeah, like early on in his reign, Kenny, um, you know, he, he he did blood players at certain times and maybe you're seeing the benefit now. Like people who've played for Ireland will always tell you it might take you 10, 15 caps to feel comfortable. I remember Kenny getting a lot of grief from some of his more high-profile ex-manager critics for, for playing Troy Parrott a lot, you know, and, and real reservations about Parrott. And yet now, suddenly Parrott is looking a little bit more comfortable and mature. Um, but and I think been, that's... It's been, it's, I totally agree. It's been, it's been Malumbi's best week. Uh, yeah. in an Irish jersey for sure. Why don't we do a mini report card then? Let me throw some uh, of the uh, more eye-catching ones to you and get your brief thoughts. So, Cuevin Kelleher, certainly very calm in the ball. It's weird. Kelleher's got like a more fluid technique in the ball than Bazunu. I'm not necessarily sure it's uh, more effective, but certainly for style points, you don't even give a second thought when Kelleher's on the ball. It's it's really impressive. Uh, we'll come to Bazunu in a second. So, Nathan Collins, we mentioned. Shane Duffy, very good again. James McLean versus Enda Stevens is an interesting one for you. Uh, Josh Cullen, your thoughts on, seemed to have a very good campaign again. And Kenny talked about him, I think, in the post-match press conference. Jason Knight, very good campaign. Malumbi, we mentioned. I say When I say campaign, I mean this week, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Hendrick, a step back. Uh, Callum Robinson, agree with you totally. And then Parrott and Obafemi almost speak for themselves. But uh, give us the movers and shakers in the Dan McDonald pecking order report card. Yeah, I was sort of trying to look at something like this, you know, winners and losers. Um, winners and losers. This is why you're in the pay. This is why you're in the newspaper business. That's a headline I, I could never dream of. I've written for tomorrow's newspaper shows. I, I'm not sure if I can like. I, I'm not going to scoop myself here. No, I, I think, I think um, Keller is an interesting one. I mean, it's Keller. I just to answer your point. I mean, Keller looks more comfortable, but it sort of makes sense because he played outfield for so long in his career. Uh, when he was younger, whereas Brazil has always been a keeper, you know. But Brazil is brilliant on the ball, but 
he's a different, he's more powerful in his physique and his appearance. You know, Kelleher, it's, it's more sort of languid. It's very sort of, you know, graceful when he's on mm. the ball. It's a really interesting clash of styles between the two two of them. Yeah, McLean probably has moved ahead of Ender Stevens now. But then I suppose the one thing you would say at this is my point, McLean's had a great season at Wigan, full of confidence. Stevens, I think he had COVID, didn't have a great year, stop start at Sheffield United with injuries. So like is it a reflection of that? You know, can that flip back round if the club situations go? Cullen, I think has gone to another level even with Ireland. I thought he was really good last night. It's probably the, in my eyes the best I've seen him nearly play because um he was very competitive in the game, like and Ukraine could move it in that department, and he actually was quite imposing and heavy. Like sometimes you could say about Colin, he can be quite nice, you know, and, and efficient, but unremarkable. But I, I felt there was a, a lot to how he played last night. Um, I agree with Nice um, and Malumbi, and I think the question is, um, does he play going forward with that three, like a six and sort of two eights, and a that's, that this is your shape or do you need to mix that up for different games I think you know for a game like Scotland you'd probably go with something like that but I think the one caution we know we would take away from it I and mean, I think the last two games were incredibly encouraging um, but the, the end game here is Ireland qualifying for a major tournament and you know enduring across a whole campaign realistically next year it'd be great to get to a situation where you have a playoff but in reality it's about Ireland coming in the top two in a qualifying group next year and I think it's great that now this team has had the experience of a big win at home against Scotland um, and a good performance away and they've generally played well against the better teams uh, in the Kenny era it's almost going to be if Ireland are third seeds it's the fourth seed it's the fifth seed it's Armenia it's all this where Again, where teams have come out and tried to play against Ireland, Ireland have been very good in those matches. But how are they going to then flip round to being a sort of an efficient killer when you're playing against the teams that you're meant to beat, that you're supposed to beat, and to deliver that consistency of performance that it's not just a reaction to something that's come before. Mm. Um, I think that's, to me, look, it's great that last night was a back-to-back display, that they really followed up on, I, I must admit, I had a little niggling fear that there might be a drop-off from the high of that and there wasn't but I think to me that's the thing now it's like young players will be inconsistent and it will happen but how you how they collectively adapt to the games where now they're going to be expected to win that they have to win and that's just the, the small little niggle that you would have when you think a corner's been turned it's like well that's that's the next step up um, and it's great to play where a team is quite open against and you can exploit them and you can really play modern football against them and really really enjoyable game but there's going to be a different types of tests that you have to pass to get to a tournament and I think seeing how this team responds to that is is the next step of their progression I think You mentioned Lennon there briefly one of the truly memorable yellow cards I think that we've uh, seen in Irish international football the referee had a hell of an impact on this game I was thinking back to Euro 2020 when uh, the referees contributed so much to what was a fantastic tournament by just letting things go. And and we saw tackles where I kind of felt like I understood the game again because for a while it was hard to know what a foul was anymore. And it, it, it really added that to that tournament. And then, if you remember, we went into the Premier League season and it was like Operation Let It Flow. And then there was like the Harvey Elliott ankle breaking and the sense of, well, this is what's going to happen if we let the game go too much. Uh, maybe international football is going to 
make it make this its selling point and corner the market. We are going to have some good old tackles. Tune in. Yeah, look, I'd love to know if this was a trend across the, I, just the way it is traveling. I haven't seen too many of the other games if you know, in the other sort of groups, but I thought it was a real striking feature. Um, and, and Kenny even commented, he, he felt the Ukraine home referee was a bit fussy, but he, he went out of his way to mention um, at some stage in Poland about how the ref in Scotland really let, the, against Scotland, really let the game flow. And a lot of these refs that have been in charge of the games are sort of the second tier refs in in the sort of UEFA ladder. But I've noticed that, and I, I don't know, is it reflective of a, of a general trend that they are being encouraged to do it? And um, there was just, there was certainly a lot of stuff that was waved on that you wouldn't normally expect in this sort of stereotypical view of the international game and mm. play acting and stuff. And it's great. I mean, it was it was just a really entertaining game last night. You know, okay, it's not the didn't have the intensity still of like a, you know, the the, the absolute, you know, your 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 life is on the line in terms of qualifying here. Although, it, you know, it, 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 in periods though it did, like you know, it had that sort of thrilling end to end thing of a game of real consequence. And maybe the refs have, have contributed some way. I mean, the Lenin one was classic, but then this is the point about uh, the depth of defence. I mean, I know it's a, it's a competitive debutant. It's possible to some Ireland fans watching it last night who maybe just more so concentrate on the Premier League. He might be a relatively new name. You know, they might know a huge amount about him. But he's played over 200 appearances in the Championship where he'll have played against some of, some, you know, Mitrovic and some of the best strikers you'd probably play in, you know, better than you would play at international level. And I actually think that really shone through last night. It's like this fella's been around the block yeah. and captain clubs and I he's would- not... Not phased. It was a really good foul. Like he knew I'm going to have to foul him. But I'm going to have to make damn sure I stop him because that guy's fast and he's away from me. And it was, it was an experienced foul. Uh, I have 30 seconds, so if you could, uh, it would be remiss of us not to mention the fact that suddenly a 20 year old Irish player in Gavin Bzunu has been signed by Southampton. He had two years left on a city deal. They've decided to cash in. So Ralph Hassenhuddle will be uh, working with. Gavin Bazuna next season because Fraser Foster's moved on. He went on a free to Spurs. There is a vacancy there. This deal is worth up to, and it, it may well, well not get there, who knows, but it's worth up to 18.5 million euro, I was reading. And this is for a 20-year-old goalkeeper. So it's very impressive. Medical today. Uh, Dan, this is great. It gives an extra layer of intrigue to the Premier League season next year. It's brilliant for Bazunu. I'm sure Quevin Keller is looking at him going, hmm, this gives me more thinking to do. And I suspect you'll be saying to your Irish independent paymasters, you know, it's very important that I'm there for Bazuno versus Manchester United, Man City, Liverpool, mm. these kind of games. I need to be there, you know. I like to send it out, Joe. Yeah, it's great to get back. I haven't been in them in a couple of years and um, it, it would be good. I mean, the thing about it last night, you know, Nathan Collins was exceptional. He was the only Irish player in the pitch who'd been involved in the Premier League in the closing weeks of the season, you know, and you sort of see, well, is it a surprise then that his levels were, were that, you know, that he was the higher level because that's where he operates, the cream rises. And I think, you know, Bazuna was sort of, um, it's, 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 it's a terrific move for him. I think um, I've been traveling today, so didn't necessarily get a chance to, to do something on it yet. But I think it's fair to say that, uh, I think it's been reported, I think I mentioned it maybe last week and it's been speculated. I, I think Man City are going to have a, a, the option to take him back. They do, so the buyback clause, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Man City aren't just letting him go and say thanks very much. I think they still have a lot of faith in him. Um, but clearly Ederson is is um uh you know exceptionally good. So it's a bit of a win-win for Brazilian go go to Southampton, you know, establish yourself as the number one in the Premier League. And if you do exceptionally well, your dream of being number one at City is 
contractually there as a as, as a scenario that might happen mm. uh, if they choose to uh, activate it. But yeah, I mean Keller has been making noises in this window that he's never met before that potentially been looking to to move elsewhere and. Um, it can have a domino effect, I suppose. And I, I think that's always been the hope with it. what is quite a decent generation of Irish players coming through. And it's very pronounced with the goalkeepers that they're in the same position. But even even some of the other ones, like Jason Knight has decisions to make this summer, that they all, they are motivated by each other. Like they see their sort of peers get to a certain level, get to a certain status, and they start to think, well, I want some of that. And that's the hope, you know, that's what we're hoping that sort of they can always, the rising tide can sort of lift them all. And that's, um, mm. and, and Bazuna breaking out and getting the move that puts that type of price tag on them. Um, that, that could even, that could even start to make other lads think about their situations as well. Yeah. Not bad to be a 20 year old Gam Bazuna, I would think. Dan, I know you've uh, moved heaven and earth to travel back and get here on time for us. So we appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joe. Take care. Cheers. Dan McDonald of the Irish Independent. Our football show coverage is brought to you by Sky, proud partner of the women's national football team, Out Believe Together, and we can go anywhere. We are talking England nil, Hungary 4 with Jonathan Wilson next. Football on Off the Ball. With Sky. All the football you love in one place across Sky Sports, BT Sport, and Premier Sports. The minute a lad asked me for a ticket, he'd go into the book. He'd put a 50, 60, 70 request. They would up the mammy then and we kind of went through the list of two of the most. There could be a lot of lads texting. OTB AM, live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. Football on Off The Ball. With Sky, proud partner of our women's national football team. Out believe together and we can go anywhere. Now you're welcome back. So it was a, well, potentially crisis prompting 4-0 defeat for England at home to Hungary last night. If not crisis prompting, certainly not ideal to have Molyneux Stadium chanting sacked in the morning and you don't know what you're doing to Gareth Southgate. Two games out from a World Cup. Jonathan Wilson, I'm very happy to say, is with us. Before we speak with Jonathan, Gareth Southgate asked about the general reaction at Molyneux Stadium last night, amongst other things. Well, it's not pleasant, you know, um... The irony is that the pressure we've had and the reputational comments have come in the two Nations League campaigns and in neither campaign have we been anywhere near able to pick our strongest teams for the games. The the matches where every other England managers have been judged, we've had the best performances for 50 years. So there is a balance in my head, I'm really clear, but I totally understand the response tonight. I totally understand there's been this narrative all week and I didn't think that was correct after the Germany game. But tonight, you know, I can't, you know, I can't dress up what's happened tonight in any way, shape or form. Um, but if, I, if we're judged on the matches with our full strength players, then I think it's a different assessment. Um, so I've got to accept for, you know, the next period is going to be uh, unpleasant and, uh, and uncomfortable, but that's, that's life as a football manager. You're never going to have six years like we've had and not have difficult nights. So that was Gareth Southgate. Jonathan Wilson with us. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, we'll get into the wider picture in Southgate, and I suppose the wider picture is part of the reason like, uh, that there was such a reaction to this uh, defeat. 
Marco Rossi, the Hungary manager, said his side were slightly lucky. This was not a full-strength England side. What went wrong? I mean, pretty much everything. It's not a full-strength England side. I think it's a Hungary team who are better than people perhaps give them credit for, particularly... You know, sitting deep, playing on the break. Yeah, they're very well organised. Go along to to Choloy. They're they're very good at that, and we've seen them cause a lot of very good teams uh, problems. So England aren't unique in that. I think it was one of those nights when Hungary didn't score quite with all their chances, but they they, they definitely were were very efficient in taking their chances. Um, but I, I think it's more than anything else. It's just nobody wanted to be playing this game, or nobody English did. Um, yeah, this has been because of COVID, it's been a really, really long, exhausting season. Uh, yeah, I don't know a journalist who's not shattered. Yeah, no journalist wanted to be in, in Wolverhampton last night, um, or in Munich, or um, uh, in Budapest before that. It, it's It's been a really, really tiring two weeks when it felt like the season was over. With with the Champions League final, and even the Champions League final wasn't the sort of this is more of a journalist issue, but you know you sort of think, okay, we have a game on Saturday night, it's all finished, but actually no, it all spills, spills over into the Sunday because of the, the chaos around that game. Uh, but but for players, I just don't know how players would would pick themselves up at all. I mean, they they know that this is a game that really doesn't matter. Um, they must look at that squad and think, well, half the people here aren't going to be in a World Cup squad. Uh, I guess those who were on the fringes might think this is a chance to cement my place. But fundamentally, I just think everybody was done two or three weeks ago. And it, it's very hard to pick yourself up. Um, partly a mental issue and partly physically, they're, they're, they're just exhausted. Mm. Uh, the team for people, I mean, I suspect the Irish audience was generally enjoying uh, Nathan Collins do his thing for Ireland last night. But the team was Ramsdale. It was a back four. This is the third game running where Southgate has gone to a back four. So it was Walker right back. It was Stones. It was Mark Gay, the 21-year-old Crystal Palace defender. Reese James at left back. So that's kind of shoehorning right-footed player in there. And then it was Gallagher, uh, Callum Phillips, Bellingham. And it was Jared Bone and Saka and Kane leading the line. So that is, is so clearly not an England uh, team at full strength with Pickford, Trippier, Maguire, Grealish, Rice, Mount, Foden, all on the bench. I mean, extraordinary. Um, yeah, no, no, chill. He, you know, if he is fit, would clearly have the left back slot or, or Luke Shaw. So, yeah. so you know, with, yeah, with, 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 it, given that team and given all the, you know, the, the, I think the very reasonable mitigation that, about uh, tiredness and end of season, like even Alexander Arnold, it was like a gentleman's agreement. You can go on holidays and get some rest. Uh, explain to us the level, and this is the wider point of unhappiness with Southgate and why uh, phone-in shows that I've been listening to today are awash with caller after caller bemoaning Southgate's innate conservatism and and like get rid and even that reaction at Molyneux last night is quite something I mean surely some credit in the bank here no? Yeah I hope so I mean look it is a terrible result we can't deny that it's England's worst home defeat since 1928 it's the first time we've conceded uh, more than three at home in a game since they lost to Hungary in 1953 so it's a terrible result in historical terms. It's a, it's a slightly freakish result, but it is a terrible result. You can't, and it, it's not, they're not losing 4 0 to, to Germany or Brazil. It's Hungary, who, yeah, okay, in 1953 were a brilliant team. They're a sort of, I don't know, what do you want to call them, a competent plus team now. Um, you know, the, the, of, of the Group A teams, they're in that fourth tier. Um, 
So we can't sugarcoat it. It's a a terrible, terrible result. And it it, it should be a shock to people and people should be appalled by it uh, for all the fact that there there are uh, issues in mitigation. But yeah, I think that the the level of hostility um, was a surprise to everybody. This is only England's second defeat in in 90 minutes in a game for 18 months. Um, So that's a pretty unprecedented run of decent form. Um, I mean, would it have made a difference if he lost 1-0? I don't know. I, I, but my suspicion is, and the feeling has been really, even after the final of the Euros, I was surprised by the level of criticism. Uh, and I, I think there's a number of factors there. So one is just an issue with international football. And I think this happens with all countries that, and it manifests itself in different ways in different countries. But with international football, a lot of people watch it who don't watch a club team week in, week out. And perhaps don't quite have the understanding of the nuances of the game and the fact that you can't just go out and batter teams. That's just not how it works. No matter how good you are, it doesn't work like that. Um, and, and there's sort of this idea, oh, England have got to open up. Now, the problem is they're too open. You know, it's, a, it's a very, I, I find the argument bizarre that England should open up. You know, this isn't, I don't know when the last time England could open up was. 30 years ago, maybe? 40 years ago? It's just not how modern international football is. You, know, you have to keep it tight because you don't have the time as a manager to put in place the, the complex attacking structures that you have at club level. The club game is very different to the national game. You've got to recognise that. There's no point saying, well, I'll watch Manchester City play like this or I'll watch Liverpool play like this. Why can't England do that? Well, because they're not club sides. Um, and it's not to just to do with quality of play. It's, a, it's to do with quality of time on the training pitch. It just doesn't exist. Um, so I, I think the sort of... A, a bizarre entitlement uh, with the England support of, of, of what they you know, what they should expect. No England team since I mean you make a case for late forties possibly England did go out and absolutely batter some good teams, winning four 0 in Turin in nineteen forty eight, beating Portugal ten 0 But that's not modern football. That's not a realistic thing to expect now. So it's partly that. I think it's partly there's a sense of. Um, Familiarity breeding contempt with Southgate. After six years, people think, think, uh, yeah, they, they always dream of what, what could be. The grass is always greener. Uh, we've sort of seen a pattern of Southgate sides. That, yes, they are quite cautious. Personally, I think that's what they should be. And then they they fall just short, which is way, way better than they had been doing, where they previously, you know, two semifinals in the last two tournaments, as opposed to two semifinals in the previous half century, is a significant improvement. I think people look at this squad and think there's a lot of really good attacking players in there. Why don't they play great attacking football? But again, look at, say, Argentina, who for 20 years have struggled with having a dozen brilliant attacking players and have not produced great attacking football. That's just not how international football works. But I think actually the most worrying and most damaging thing, and it's very, very hard to be sure about this, but it it is a theory that, that I think you've got to consider that there is a very different attitude between Southgate on the one hand He's very, um, he's very liberal in outlook. He's very keen to push an anti-racist line. Uh, he's very uh, reluctant to, to, to beat the patriotic drum too hard. And a fan base who, let's not forget, before the Euros were booing the taking of a knee. And, and that split, I think, is, is a really worrying one. In the longer term, in the terms of Qatar, it doesn't really matter because there's not going to be many England fans in Qatar. 
So for, for this World Cup, of all World Cups, it might be one where that doesn't matter so much. So is, is there almost a sense that for a fair quotient of the English fans, uh, conservative football or no, it's his liberal views that irk them a touch and he's on thin ice? Yeah, I think so. I think I think the it's it's obviously no. The, there's a the, okay. There's a tiny percentage of those fans would attack him outright for his support for Black Lives Matter for taking the knee uh, for speaking out. Although I personally, I wish he'd speak out more on Qatar and issues of labour relations and, and human rights there. Um, I, I think there's a much larger section of that fan base and so not all by all means I, you know, I'm not saying all England fans like this but there is a you know that section the boo the taking of in Middlesbrough I think are quite happy to use oh it's conservative football as a as a stick to beat him with because the stick they want to pick up they realise they probably shouldn't okay interesting uh, on um, his managerial abilities I mean he's pretty much on the record as saying he sees tournament football as an exercise in not conceding goals and that's the foundation and to be fair to him Portugal in 16 at the Euros and France at the most recent World Cup, uh, to a lesser extent, perhaps Italy at the Euros just gone. There's a body of evidence there that he's onto something. And that type of football, as you said, given the time a manager has with players, is the um, most doable at international level. And like at club level, at Trent Alexander-Arnold over the course of a season, the good probably does outweigh the bad. But then in the Champions League final, you can get caught and sucker punched. And at tournaments here, we're talking two, three tough games, maybe tops. So in many respects, I can see where Southgate's coming from. It does make the two-year interim period between tournaments probably a touch dull and frustrating for fans when England generally should win well. Um, and, and maybe that's a part of it. The other thing uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on was the general accusation thrown at Southgate that he set a team up reasonably well, for sure, and then he's very slow to react in games. That was mentioned a touch after the Croatia defeat at the World Cup in 18. And particularly the sense was that Mancini got to grips with England and made some switches and took off Immobile and put on, I think it was Berardi and Insigne started playing through the lines. And, and he wrestled back control of that game and Southgate never reacted, never reacted. And what's more, his uh, penalty shootout tactics backfired spectacularly. So... There, like there are, there are cases against Southgate here, uh, which mm. which are probably legitimate. For instance, where would Southgate, I wonder, pitch up if he goes back on the market in in Premier League terms? Uh, so it's hard to get a feel for where Southgate the manager is, because on the whole, he has done a good job. Yeah, well, I, th- I think again, you've got to separate club football and international football. I think he's been a really, really good. He's been the best international England manager of my time as a journalist of twenty years. He's been the best without question. That doesn't mean he's the best manager, but he's the best international manager. Uh, because being an international manager is partly about being an ambassador for the country. It's about creating the right environment for for the players, and and, and that involves the media as well. Yeah, creating good relations there, making the players feel comfortable. Uh, I don't think there's been any sense at all in his six years in charge that any player has been reluctant to play for England. Um, maybe Jamie Vardy, but he was. I think he he realised his his role with England was going to be very much a, a secondary one, and he wanted to protect himself for Leicester. Yeah. I think that's totally understandable. I don't think there's ever a sense that he was frustrated with Southgate. He just recognised the reality of the situation. And Southgate, I think, handled that very, very well. Um, And I think, as you say, I think he's very good at setting teams up. I think he's very good at sort of doggedly going through the evidence, doing the research, putting that into practice. Now, you can argue that the penalty share technique didn't work. What he'd he'd worked out for that, working with psychologists, drilling and drilling and drilling in in training. Um, But the, the, the problem with with 
But something like that is saying because it didn't work in that one instance, then his plans just don't work. Mm. Well, he beat Switzerland in the Nations League's uh, third place playoff. He beat Colombia at the World Cup. England managers tend not to win penalty shootouts. So he's he sort of won two big ones, lost the biggest one. Uh, but you know, if Marcus Rashford's penalty gone three inches to the right, England almost certainly win the Euros. And then that you know, we're talking about what a genius he is. Yes. So if if the thing that's counting against him is a penalty that was three inches from being perfect, I think you, you, you give him a bit of a pass for that. However, I do completely agree with you that where he doesn't have time to do the research and think things through and go through it methodically, when he's having to make changes on his feet, he he does often seem slow at doing that. So the Croatia semi-final, when the Croatian wing-back started pressing forward and Jordan Henderson was essentially doing shuttle runs across the pitch because he had no support in there, mm. quite why he didn't bring Paul Raheem Sterling deeper to, to giving them that extra protection. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, that was obvious at the time to me sitting in the stand. Yeah. I think equally the Euros final... Before the Italy equaliser, you could sense the momentum of the game had shifted. He waited till the, till the equaliser happened before he made changes and actually sort of stabilised the game after that, which which may also be Italy having got the equaliser sitting a bit deeper. Um, what you'd say on the plus side there is there was the Poland World Cup qualifier when Poland equalised and England then did find another gear and go on and get a winner. And, and equally the game in Munich, he, yeah, he did bring on Grealish and that did lead to the equaliser. So it's not all bad in that regard, but but yeah, no. that, that's the criticism you'd have. And that, I think, were I a, a Premier League chairman, that would be what would concern me about appointing him. Um, yeah. But anyway, you look at his Middlesbrough record and it sort of is pretty similar to his England record that it, without being spectacular, it was solid and it was fine. And then eventually, you know, it, it ran out of steam. See, I would tend to agree with you, though, that in the main, you take a broad look at the job he's done. It's been... Excellent. It's not an easy job. That is not an easy job to do. Uh, there are pitfalls all along the way. Uh, Sam Allardyce-esque and on the pitch for pit, uh, pitfalls. And and it's fair to say with the political uh, turbulence, he's had plenty to handle uh, off the pitch as well. So he's done it all with um, aplomb. And, and that was my sense, really. So, But even leaving aside the quotient of England fans who just don't like the cut of Southgate's jib and his politics and his just his general approach to things and so they're 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 quick to pounce on him. I was very struck over the last twenty four hours by the number of pundits and former players listening to be a talk sport or five live or reading different pieces who've been so quick to pounce on him and saying, doesn't know his best team. We've just been very lucky with our draws at the two major tournaments and look there's a there's a grain of truth in that for sure, but you know, a lot of draws aren't that tough at international uh, football tournaments. But like huge numbers of them saying he doesn't know what he's doing and, and, you know, isn't getting the best out of the team. You sort of need to be in immersed in a in a country maybe to kind of appreciate all those nuances, like the same way I had an innate understanding of everything that's been said about Stephen Kenny. I didn't I didn't realise slightly from afar this was bubbling up around Southgate. I, I, I thought he was the, uh, you know, uh, M&S are going to sell out of waistcoats. We love this guy. Uh, leader, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, I think it has been. You could hear, you'd feel it bubbling even at the Euros. I mean, uh, I, I've been actually slightly struck today by how many journalists have come out and been very openly supportive of him. Uh, and there does seem to be a big split between uh, journalists on one hand and pundits on the other. And I, I, I mean, talks about pundits, I guess. Um, shouting the odds is 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 their job. So sure. uh, whether that's a serious barometer of, of opinion or not, I don't know. 
Um, but, but I thought they'd say, guys, come on. This was uh, clearly a second string side. Mm. It's the end of a long season. Like this, this is not something to be uh, overly concerned about. It's a shocking result. But I mean, it was like straight to, yeah, no, this isn't working. Yeah. It's okay at all. But I, I think the, I mean, as I say, I, I could sort of feel it coming at the Euros. And then obviously because England gets to the final, all that gets stamped down. But the creep stage, I mean, even after that draw against Scotland, there was a lot of hostility and a lot of frustration. Yeah. And you sort of, I mean, I, I sort of found that bewildering and, and uh, because you know, England had lost to Croatia the last time they played against them. And then he's getting criticised for only beating them 1-0 in a game where England were totally comfortable. Yeah. I mean, Croatia didn't have a shot in that game. Or didn't have a shot on target. Um, and, and then, yeah, okay, the easy draw, I think, at the World Cup, I think that's a, a reasonable point to make. Although, I mean, Colombia's not that easy, but, but then, yeah, the Euros... They play a World Cup finalist in their first game. Uh, they beat the Czechs, who go on to put out the Dutch. They play Scotland, which you know, is, is a game that's just difficult for England for all yeah. kinds of reasons that have little to do with the quality of that Scotland squad. They beat Germany, who, okay, Germany down and look, but it's still Germany. They absolutely batter Ukraine. Hmm. Um, then they, they, they just about get the better of a, of a pretty good Denmark, who you know, we've now seen beating France. I don't think that draw in the Euros was easy at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, if, if, if people are calling that an easy draw, well, find me an average draw in a World Cup or a major tournament. I think that's pretty pretty standard, on the tough side of standard for, for a draw. And it's almost like because England win the games, ah, oh, well, it was easy, wasn't it? Mm. And, but I, I remember you know, that, that Germany game even. I was actually, I, I wasn't at that. I was up at Hamden doing uh, Ukraine v Sweden. And... I was sort of watching thing. Now England did quite well here, sort of just holding Germany at arm's length. And we know that England have a better bench. And this this sort of makes sense. Hold them at arm's length, use the bench to 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 to, to hit them late on. I, I I sort of get the concept of a game as a as a 90 minute thing. You don't have to beat them in the first minute, as long as you're ahead of, after 90 minutes plus injury time. That's what matters. And maybe that's I've I've recently been doing a lot of research on Alf Ramsey, and that's very much the line Ramsey took. Uh, that yeah, forget the performance, forget about sort of playing pretty football. Mm. Make sure you've got control. Make sure they can't beat you, and then rely on your stamina. I mean, you know, obviously in '66 there was no bench, but rely on your stamina to get you through. And I, I sort of I began to see Southgate in in that mould, and I, I sort of was hearing people going, "Oh yeah, he's betraying the greatest attacking generation of players England have ever had." Yeah, in 20 years, historians are going to look back and go, yeah, why was Phil Foden on the bench? Or why was Jack Grealish on the bench? It's just, this, is, this is insanity. He, he's controlling a game against Germany. England just waiting for their moment. And mm. the moment did come. I don't really know what else people want. Um, I guess if, you, if you're doing that, you have to win. Yeah, yeah, but but only one team ever wins. Sure. And so... Yeah, you can't, you can't go into a tournament and say, you know, at the, at the Euros, that 23 managers were failures. But yeah, that's a, that's an absurd bar for success. You can on talk sport, Jonathan. Well, you, you can on talk sport, yeah. yeah but yeah. It, but, it, but it's just so it's so fascinating that less than a year from that that uh, Euros campaign that you outlined, less than a year, here he has been booed out of Molyneux mm. for a Nations League game. It's it's so interesting, and I, yeah. I don't know where that leaves him for Qatar as a final point. Well, I, I, I'd be absolutely stunned if he weren't a manager in Qatar. Yeah. Um, I, I think anybody who gives this. Like, I don't think anybody who wasn't already anti-Southgate should really have had their mind changed by the last 10 days. Uh, I think we knew this was going to be a really difficult period of games. Um, I think what we're seeing is the problem of the scheduling as well, that uh, 
the, the managers have had to use these games for a little bit of World Cup experimentation. But it's the worst time to do that because everybody's knackered and they're not even thinking about the World Cup. So you, know, you, you would have this at the end of the season if the World Cup had started you know, this week, which is you know, when it normally would have done. Um, but there's a World Cup immediately ahead of you, so you haven't sort of mentally switched off. But also the fact you had the two seasons or the you know, season and a half sort of rammed together for because of because of COVID, it's it's made that 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 so much worse. So I think preparation is has been hugely difficult for this World Cup. I suspect it'll be a bad World Cup as a result. I think a lot of I think I think there'll be quite a lot of randomness in those early early results in mm-hmm. Qatar. I think a lot of big teams could could slip up early on. Um, purely because their players will be playing in the biggest games and the biggest leagues and are going to have to make that adjustment. You know, eight days between the final Premier League game and England's first game at the World Cup. Wow. I mean, that's insanity. You can't prepare a team in that time. I hadn't twigged that. Um, really? And, wow. And if you look at, you know, I, I was out at the Cup of Nations in Cameroon and I think there was five days, some players had five days between the last league game and the opening game of the tournament. And the first round of fixtures in that tournament well, the nonsense. The football was terrible. Uh, there's, there's a load of sort of really surprising results with teams like you know, Comoros or Gambia suddenly getting really good results. Gambia possibly, that you know, they, they, they are on the up. But you're just sort of looking at the, the sort of better known, better established players, ones who play in better leagues. And you could see them not being able to sort of, you know, by the second and third group games, they'd settled down and the football was a bit more what you'd expect. That first round of games was... Was was a lottery, and I think you will see that at the World Cup. Mm. Well, he has two games in September to save his job, Jonathan. So uh, <laughs> we look forward to that. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Much appreciated, Jonathan Wilson. Cheers, thank you. Thank you. Football on off the ball with Sky. All the football you love in one place across Sky Sports, BT Sport, and Premier Sports.